Let's give you these guys a round of applause, yeah. Well, we are jumping back into the story, and if you're just tuning in for the first time, the story is a book that takes you through large sections of the Bible in chronological order at a pace that reads more like a novel. It's not a replacement for the Bible, but rather it's meant to give the reader the opportunity to see the big picture. It's looking at the forest and not just the trees. You don't, if you don't have a copy, we would love to track um, one down for you. We still have some available. And if you do have one at your, on your shelf at home, again, please join with us. It's never too late to start reading along with us. Um, now, last time we took a look at the story, it was the end of November before uh, the Christmas season and all of the busyness uh, that that brings. We were just introduced to a young fellow by the name of David who slayed a giant and then eventually became king. You saw him there um, fighting Goliath in the early video there. Um, this week in the story, we're looking at the rest of his life. Uh, but for the sake of time, uh, we'll only highlight a few key uh, moments. So again, read through the story, uh, the, story the trials of a king, uh, if you get the chance. Now, the Israelite people chose to have a king. It wasn't God's recommendation, and they chose Saul. But God himself chose David to replace Saul as king. You'd think if God chose David, that it would have been a happily ever after story. It would have been a fairy tale kind of story. The true king on the throne, the nation would thrive, all his descendants and all the people of his kingdom would be healthy and happy forever. However, as you follow David's life, sin brings pain and destruction to the nation, himself and his family. In fact, if you put the sins of David next to the sins of Saul, you will see that they are not so different after all. In fact, as it relates to sin, there is no difference. The remarkable difference between David and Saul is that David, despite his sin, despite his mistakes, despite his hard heart at times, never loses his faith in the Lord his desperate circumstances never cause him to question the reality of God's presence, power, or holiness. In his pain, he still puts his eternity in the hands of the Lord. And when he hears the voice of the Lord, he humbles himself. So it's exciting to read the story about the young up-and-coming uh, David um, when he slays Goliath. And as he rises to be king. But it's a lot harder to read the story of how much pain and heartache enter that same person's life through sin. But every word in the living word of God has something to say to us. So with humble hearts, let's open our eyes to what he might show us this morning as we read. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 primarily. So you can turn there if you've got your Bible with you on your phone, you version, or there's one in the seat in front of you. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. You can take that one in the seat in front of you, and you can have the opportunity to read. Let's dive in. Chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, plenty of modern people have trouble with the violence that you see 
in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, believing that it sends mixed messages about the moral code. But that is really only a first-glance reaction. The reality is no nation that has borders can exist without having a means to protect them. Which is the remarkable thing about the kingdom of Jesus, since it has no borders. You can't say here it is or there it is, which means that there is no need for violence. It can't be advanced through violence, and it can't be undone by violence. So it's actually fairly plain to see that throughout the scripture, when a nation is violent, though, or greedy or immoral, God does deal with it. He offers them time to repent, time to change their ways, and if he will not, he judges them swiftly and harshly for every wrong. Now these nations, as they go off to war in the springtime, they needed to figure out where they stood with each other, how they would trade or relate to one another. This was their politics, but David even though he was God's representative for the nation, didn't go. Now one evening, David got up from his bed and walked walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent uh, messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. This, I think, is the the main point I'd like to make here this morning. It's this. Sin comes comes for us inch by inch. When did David sin? Was it only in the moment when he slept with Bathsheba? These are the steps it took to get to sin. Number one, David remained in Jerusalem. He should have been with his army. The ark was out there. The symbol of the Lord's presence with the whole nation was out there. And yet he wasn't as the king. It's not entirely clear why he didn't go, but the author includes it, so it must have been significant that he made this choice. Number two, he got up from his bed. He should have just stayed in bed until he fell back asleep. It would have been a different story entirely. Did you know that willpower is like a muscle? The more you use it, the stronger it gets, but it also needs rest. When you wake up in the morning, you start with the most amount of willpower. Now, if you're a morning person, you may doubt me, but it's still true. It just takes you a while to come online, and bit by bit, your willpower becomes tired or depleted, just like your physical body. So you have to have a plan. On a long journey, you have to have water and food. You have to have sleep. What are you going to do when your willpower is low? You have to use the gas in your tank to get to the gas station. You have to be filled up. You have to plan. How are you going to use your willpower? Remember, it's a limited resource. So what they're learning about and habits forming and uh, all of that kind of stuff and willpower, how it works, They say this, you have to use your willpower to create habits. Habits are stronger than willpower. In fact, a person of character is a person with rock-solid, dependable habits. You can predict almost how they would respond, how they would react in any situation. They have integrity almost because of their habits. 
Put as many things on autopilot as you can so that you live a life that honors God and it will help you to avoid potentially dangerous situations. So use willpower to develop the right kind of habits. Okay, that's all, only two steps so far. Three, he went to the roof. This is likely revealing his pride. He's looking at his kingdom. Not the Lord's kingdom, but his kingdom. See, the palace that he had built had a vantage point that no one else had. And despite David being much like everyone else in his early days, for example, when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into uh, where he was, he's celebrating and he's dancing. And some people have talked about how he was dancing in an undignified way. Really what that meant is that he dressed like everybody else and he didn't put on his king stuff. He didn't wear his kingly robes. He was just like everybody else. He didn't see himself as different even though he was king. But here you have him on the roof looking out and surveying his kingdom. Beyond that, he went to the roof, but then he saw the woman. And he's not just looking at his kingdom, he's thinking of the people in his kingdom as his property. Beyond that, he pondered the woman's beauty. He wasn't taking his thoughts captive, but rather he was feeding them and making room for them. He inquired about the woman. Now he's involving other people and letting his mind run further and further down this path. Then he sent for the woman. He's turning his thoughts into action. She was brought before him. By time Bathsheba is before him, he's moving so fast down his path that he feels like he can't stop. And then finally, the ninth step is that he slept with her. Are all of these steps towards sin, sin? No. But we start building up speed long before we get to that line through many steps. Do you want to do better than David? Be ruthless about all of the steps along the way. Even those, and perhaps especially those, that aren't actually sin. Again, you have to spend all of your power your willpower on the right habits and let your habits build your character. Too many people try to use their willpower for character, but it just kind of doesn't work that way. Now, we often say around here a great way to become and remain a devoted follower of Jesus is to go to church every week. It's so simple. And again, I hardly need to preach to you people because it's that Sunday between Christmas and New Year's where most people think, it's okay, if I don't go, I'll stay home and have waffles. And yet you're here. We're glad that you're here. It's so simple. Go to church. Show up weekly. And a remarkable transformation will take place in your life and in the life of your whole family. You'll have perspective on life. Because you'll be reminded that at your very core, you are a worshiper. You can either worship God, who is worthy of worship, or you can worship something else that will eventually crush and enslave you. Every idol enslaves you. Every master enslaves except for Jesus. You'll see, you'll see God as the king. You'll be delighted that you are welcomed into his presence because of the cross of Christ. You'll be humbled and also exalted. You'll be reminded that you need a rescuer and that there is one. You'll be reminded of hope, love, joy, and peace. Just by being here, you'll be impacted by the presence of God in other believers. 
You'll hear and be reminded of the truth found in Scripture. You'll play a part in changing the lives of others. You'll be a part of something that will outlast every other thing on this planet just by going to church every week. If you want to multiply the benefits, get involved and serve somewhere. I had a friend who said this once. It's always the weeks when I am struggling, struggling in my faith and I'm ready to give up that I notice that I'm scheduled to lead worship. And every week, he would have to deal with his heart, deal with his mind, and come back to that place where he could honor and serve the Lord well. Attending church is a critical keystone habit that will unlock a world of benefit in your life. And you multiply its effect when you serve. Now, if this is a step that you need to take, use your willpower later today and say to someone, I need to make attending church weekly a non-negotiable practice in my life. It's such a simple thing to change. And so simple is also the destruction that happens when you don't. There's a psalm, actually several psalms, about being right in the thick of worship in Jerusalem and in the contrast of what it's like living far away in the mountains, like a coal out of the fire. The same person is at once a passionate, devoted, godly person. And simply because of the fact that he doesn't get to go and attend church anymore, he finds himself wrestling with his faith. He has to preach to his soul and call himself back to worship. Now, I've talked to people that used to attend church and would have identified as a Christian who now don't. And when talking to them, their crisis of faith isn't a crisis of faith at all. It wasn't riddled with doubts and questions. It wasn't impossible circumstances or hatred for God. Rather, it was a slow drift, a distance that was created one inch at a time. It was hardly noticeable, but now the distance is so great it seems impossible to come back. One of the most harsh and terrifying warnings is found in Hebrews, and it talks about this same kind of drift. A ship that is just a few degrees off course will never reach its destination. So what's your innocent reason for skipping church? Is it busyness or hockey, family time, brunch with friends, catching up on work, catching up on sleep? See, none of those things are actually sin, but any one of them might overtake you because sin comes for us inch by inch. Now, Attending church, as critical as it is to having a vibrant faith, is quite small by comparison. And actually, I'm not legalistic about this. I know some people who are, but I always think, let's just cancel this Sunday, right? <laughs> One in between Christmas and New Year's, let people have holidays. There's other churches that are worshiping. We could go and celebrate and support them or something else. I don't think we should be legalistic about this. If you're on vacation, you don't have to kind of leave the lake to go and find a place, but... You can pause, you can stop to worship. You shouldn't be legalistic about it. But as big of a deal as I think attending church is, there's other things that might be coming for you. You might be losing ground inch by inch towards an affair or towards divorce, inch by inch towards destroying a friendship because of constant comparing or criticizing, inch by inch towards more and more greed. And with greed, it's always more and more. 
inch by inch towards an individualism that will leave you isolated and alone, inch by inch towards hate, which in the right circumstances will take you all the way to murder. Sin comes for us inch by inch, and once it has you, it doesn't stop. David had to cover up his sin. He had to deal with the consequences of this first sin. So, David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, um, how the soldiers were, and how their war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. This statement should have gotten through to David. This should have made him realize that Uriah had more character than him. It should have upset him, but it doesn't faze him. He doesn't see that Uriah is far outpacing him in character and that repentance and change are in order for him. He doesn't notice. He doesn't see it. He's fine with sending them and the ark away and staying in Jerusalem. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. See, Uriah wouldn't give an inch. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, it wrote, um, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And the men of the city came out and fought against Joab. Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab sent him, sent him to say. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David is set on a path of sin and this isn't for a few weeks, not even a few months. It's been a year or two now. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. Who knows what little lies he had to keep telling himself. It seems like he finally believed them. So the Lord sent the prophet to David. And again, this is a famous part of the scripture as well. This is in chapter 12, if you're following along. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, 
There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Um, but, uh, sorry, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe, lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. God waited for two years for David to repent, but he did not. Now his judgment comes. Many people struggle with God's judgment when he delivers his justice. See, we're often upset that David would let, uh, or that God would let David kill Uriah or take his wife. I mean, where was he? We're also upset that David is being judged so harshly. What about the other people that will suffer because of David's consequences? His wives, his sons, they don't deserve this, do they? This is perhaps one of the hardest things for people to come to terms with. Either we are all guilty of sin and deserve death, or there's actually no right and wrong at all. You can't have right and wrong without having judgment. There is a moral standard beyond our own, beyond our own opinions or nation's laws by which all people must be judged or there can be no right or wrong that can be forced on any person or nation. And for all the struggle that we can have with a God who judges harshly, the atheist can comfort no one in suffering because of injustice. If there is no God who sets the standard and upholds the standard, it doesn't matter if you are cheated or abused or your loved ones taken from you. There is no 
hope and no justice apart from a holy God who sets the standard and upholds it. You might have more questions about that. I'd be happy to chat with you afterwards about that idea. So God places his judgment on David and consequences fall on him and also onto his family and his nation. The Bible is clear that David's sin doesn't fall onto his family or nation, but the consequences definitely do. If David had just stayed in bed, perhaps things could have been different. But in the next chapters, his sons commit sexual sin and murder just like their father. And it tears David apart, nearly rips apart the whole nation. The whole nation feels the ramifications. Be ruthless about all the steps toward sin, not only for your sake, but also for the sake of your children. Did you know that dealing with generational sin is a key component to set free? We run this event twice a year and have taken it on the road this last year and plan to do that again in the new year so that more and more people will take hold of their sin and conquer it, to learn the freedom that they can have in Christ, to know that they can have victory over the enemy, but not just so that they can have victory, but also so that the next generation can have victory. Parents, do you see reflections of your sinful self in your kids? You can't outrun it. You can't move away from it. You can't just hide it. You have to deal with your sin in hopes of being able to help them. If you haven't been to set free, join us in March. That and come and humble yourself before the Lord this morning. Come to the altar and repent. Pray with our prayer teams, fathers and mothers. Make a change for your own sake, but also for your children. The difference between David and Saul is revealed when David calls his sin, sin. We can read about his repentance journey in Psalm 51, and actually that will be how we end the service. But it's also kind of evident in the way that he mourns at the loss of his son. Can I read this to you? After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him and get up, um, to get up from the ground, but he refused and would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered them this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. 
But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? He says this remarkable statement, I will go to him, but he will not return home to me. See, David, despite making mistakes and sinning against the Lord, still knows that the Lord is his salvation. His faith is in the Lord. It is the Lord who rescues us from our sins. And David knows that he will spend eternity with God. David knew that one day there would be a Savior, and because of the Savior, there was hope. And you too can have hope, even if you are surrounded by the consequences of your sin. David knew that there was this Savior, and you can have hope despite your sin, despite the fact that consequences may persist in your life, you can have an eternal life that is free from sin and even free from the consequences of sin. You could start by saying a simple prayer like this. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's much more that we can learn from David's life, and so I encourage you to read this chapter from the story. And as we end today, I'd like to read Psalm 51 together. This is David's psalm of repentance. So I'll read it out loud. You're welcome to read along with me if that suits you. And then the worship team is going to lead us in one final song. I'm not sure what sin you think has overtaken you, or what sin maybe you feel like you are getting closer and closer to inch by inch. Perhaps you're not even calling sin, sin. I would encourage you to take a lesson from David's life. To call sin what it is. To be ruthless about all the steps along the way. Again, those aren't a legalistic kind of thing that you could prescribe from one person to the other. But as you try to honor the Lord... It's all of the little things around those kind of things. It's about setting certain kinds of um, boundaries in place in your life. Uh, If you need help with kind of walking through that path again, we would love to talk with you as well. Let's read from Psalm 51. You can bow your head or you can read along with me. Let's have humble hearts, repentant hearts before the Lord as we read this. Let's also let the burden of the sin that we have committed fall off as we can come to him and we can be forgiven and made whole. Um, David goes on to have another child with Bathsheba. His name is Solomon and the Lord speaks through the prophet Nathan and says, uh, call him Jedidiah instead. And though we know him as Solomon, Jedidiah means that he is loved, loved by the Lord. And uh, I think those would have been healing words to David that He commits this sin with Bathsheba and loses a son. And yet the next son that comes along, there's no disdain and it's not that way at all. He had humbled himself, he had repented. And so this son Solomon is also called Jedidiah because the Lord loved him. And that would have been healing, I'm sure, for David's soul. Let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, for those who are here this morning and perhaps have a heavy heart as we talk about uh, the destructive power and nature of sin and how easily it is, it seems, that we can get to it. I pray that they wouldn't be stuck thinking about, meditating, circling on, or feeling, or just concentrating and looking at the consequences of their sin, but instead they would look to you. They would see you on display, a holy God who loves so much that he would give his son, that Jesus would come into our world, and that he would die in our place for the joy of being able to spend eternity with us. I pray that as we look to you, as we see you, your work on the cross, what you've done for us, that our lives would be transformed, that we would live in joy for all the days of our lives. Father, I pray that you would help people go from here to use their willpower well to create the right kind of habits that would lead to great, good, and godly character so that we as a people would be able to carry your kingdom into all parts of our world. In your name we pray, amen. Just wanna say thank you so much for being a part of our uh, service this morning. And if you do want to spend some time here and pray, you, we would welcome you to do that, to pray with someone. We would love to pray with you. Uh, but let's stand together as we sing one final song.